Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast, episode 76. So I am so excited to have this person on. We've been trying back and forth um, for several months to connect, and she is one of the few people that has been referred by someone else. So someone else said, you need to get Ariel on your podcast. And I was like, okay, let me take a look at that, do some digging. And I was like, yeah, I definitely need to have this woman on here. She's one of the, she's part of the badass brigade. That's what I'm going to start a hashtag badass brigade because she just gets it done. Um, Her story is pretty amazing and spectacular. So welcome to the podcast, Ariel. Hello. Hi, it's good to be here. So tell people who you are in your own words um, briefly. Well, yes, I'm Ariel. A lot of people call me Air. That's what my friends call me. So feel free to call me that. I am a person in long-term recovery. And for me, that means I haven't used any substances, mood or mind altering. In almost six years, I'm coming up on an anniversary. So that's really exciting. And yeah, I, I, I define myself as a vigilante for, for like social it. justice and, and young people. I'm really passionate about advocacy and making sure that young people feel heard and have the resources that they need to really thrive, not as we think they should be, but as they are, as they truly are. So that's what I'm all about. I love it. That is awesome. And when is your anniversary? November 6th. Okay. So yeah, it's right around the corner. So friends, we're recording. You know how I do. The type A in me is recording ahead of time. So by the time this airs, I can actually say congratulations (laughs) on six years. Um, Thank you. But no friends right in this exact moment, but (laughs) in the future, congrats. That's awesome. And, And you know what the truth is, is that it is awesome that you have put a day at a time together for this length of length of time. That's a huge, huge um, accomplishment and hard work on your part for sure. So tell us a little bit about how you were before you got sober and what happened to kind of tilt you over into recovery and what it's been like and what you're up to now and then we'll definitely touch on social justice because that's my heartbeat as well so yeah so thinking back it's so amazing how you can have multiple lives in one lifetime sure and i i really have always been and i still am to this day about having fun um i think that's a huge importance in everything is to be passionate about living and So I started really using when I was in college and that was a time when I was away from my mom. I wasn't sheltered anymore um, in that household. And so I was able to do whatever I wanted. And for me, that was a pretty dangerous thing. I did not know that I had a substance use disorder, but I knew I liked the effects of alcohol and drugs and just really partying and being part of that scene and being a social butterfly And so it it was really fun, but slowly but surely, probably even quicker than I even really care to admit, it became the priority. Um, And so that was really concerning for me and and for my family at that time. So I decided to take some time off and really just kind of find myself. And for me, that meant just like 
wanting to have more fun. Um, and so that took me to different parts of Michigan. That's where I'm originally from. And it eventually led me to Brooklyn, New York. And that was a time in my life when I realized that, you know, I was so isolated in that environment. I wanted to move to New York, but I, I hadn't been talking to my family. I wasn't talking to my sisters. I didn't really have any friends calling me. And it was just super, super painful. It was painful for me because as much as I was consuming substances, they were no longer producing that same effect that really I really gravitated for towards when I first was introduced to them. And so that was just so heartbreaking. And I remember um, looking in the mirror on the last night of my use and just feeling like, who am I? Where, who is this person? I had all the aspirations that anybody would have, which is to have a successful career, the, the nice house, the family. And it was just so clear to me in that moment that I needed to change something. And so I, I was introduced to recovery and I have not looked back. Um, and it's, it's changed everything, but more importantly, just the way that I feel about myself um, and feel internally, no longer needing something to put inside my body to feel okay, um, no longer needing something to celebrate the good times or get through the bad times. It's a game changer. That's awesome. Um, so how would you describe um, the moment right before you got sober or that period right before you got sober to what you're experiencing now and what was kind of that bridge? between the two. Okay. So right before I got sober, like I said, I was super isolated. I was participating in just crime and doing things that I had no sense doing. My mom always says that I've always been a really good risk taker. Um, and now in recovery, I'm taking the right risk. So I still have that same tenacity. I will, sure. I will go for things. And so I remember, you know, I'm, I'm a 12 step person. So I remember walking mm -hmm. into my first space, my first 12 step meeting, and I hadn't realized how long it had been since I really felt a connection with someone and really mm -hmm. gave myself permission to cry, um, really did a lot of stuffing down of emotions. And so that space of having other people who are going through the same thing that I was, but also mm -hmm. being an example and being new as well really um, connected me to human beings, right? That sure. human connection piece was really vital in me wanting to come back the next day and wanting to participate in things that they were doing and, and wanting for me to, to have the courage to really look at myself, to really see, you know, these patterns of behavior that were um, preventing me from just being a part of, being a part of this thing. I always felt a separation between the world and me. And so now when I look back, all the work that I've done internally, and then also the service portion of my recovery, the, the really, the really living in it, um, sharing my experience, being of service, really practicing the principles of honesty, accountability, forgiveness, and, and everything that I do, I really try to do that. I can just see how that is like permeated throughout my whole life. And, and as a result, you know, I've been able to travel and speak on a lot of cool stages. 
I've been a part of some, some collegiate recovery movement work. Um, that's a lot of the work that I've done. I have a wonderful mentor who's at U of M now, Matt Statman, who's just the best to really um, allow me to take that a step further. So I always say that, you know, 12 step recovery saved my life, but the work that I've done outside of that to kind of have recovery permeate those same, that same thread of, of being connected to something bigger than myself has like given me a life beyond anything and has just aligned me with some amazing opportunities. And so I really just kind of float through. I, I have a, also have a spiritual advisor too. And recently she said that I'm like a traveling service. So I've done some awesome work in Michigan and then I moved to Atlanta for a year and did some awesome work there at um, a university. And now I'm in Denver, um, <laughs> just shortly moved here less than a month ago. Mm -hmm. And I did some awesome work there establishing some programming for this great organization called the Phoenix, which I'm really excited to really build sober active communities for young people and, and have it be um, a stronger entry point um, for people with different backgrounds, like education, not limited sure. from building that community. That's awesome. So what, um, you, you were talking and I loved your description of advocacy, activism, and lending a voice or amplifying the voices of young people um, because you were young when you got sober, correct? Mm -hmm. And then what is it that society needs to know about young people that we're not taking into consideration when we're having this conversation? I think about just my experiencing my experience growing up and what would have helped me and what, what I see that young people really need. And there's just so much pressure. I, I, I'm good at school. I appreciate school, but I really struggle with the education system. Sure. I really feel like what we're teaching young people is to fit into these kind of categories. And if you don't do well, in this class, or if you don't do well in this way, you're, you're kind of like screwed, you're set up for failure. So there's, sure. there's like this, this, this crisis, this existential crisis that we create based off in systems that they spend majority of their time in. Yeah. And I feel like not enough young people are heard or given opportunities to really think about who they are as just human beings, who they are as like, souls on this planet mm -hmm. and, and they may sound super wacky but I know that is just it, there's just a freedom that I am able to provide when I talk to a young person and just see them right without expectation but really just for them to be able to just be seen and to be heard you know for them to be able to create their own values and what mm -hmm. they want their own ideals for what they want I and mean, a lot of folks have not even been able to ask young people these questions, you know? And so I think also too, working in the advocacy field and working with young people in recovery, I, the reason why I've navigated out of higher education, mm -hmm. because a lot of young people, I'm an African-American woman and a lot of young people don't look like me, right? Who are in these systems. And mm -hmm. so that in itself is like, I, I truly believe like something bigger than myself or, or, or in me, something in me was like, you need to, you need to do more of this work. You need to be a little bit 
on, on the further and whether it's prevention or early intervention and work with systems where young people who look like me are, right? Um, sure. Who have not been heard, who have probably done a lot, have done a really good job of just surviving yeah. and knowing how to do that, but not just being. Yeah. So that is where I'm at with all that. That's awesome. So what are you doing with Phoenix? Is it called Phoenix? Yes. Yeah, so it was formerly known as Phoenix Multisport. And it's been around for about 10 years. And so what they do is, is they build community through sober, high intensity activities, right? So there's a gym here in Denver, which is where I'm located. They just bought a facility in Boston. There's one in Orange County in Boise. And, and really it's about having a space where if you're 48 hours sober, you can come in, work out, try out CrossFit, yoga, um, they also have recovery meetings there. They're developing and working on their workforce programming. So someone coming in, a young person coming in, can work with a trainer to get certified in CrossFit so that they can use that as a job, you know, build that social mm -hmm. capital. And so I came on um, because there's definitely a need for specific programming for youth and young adults. So how can we really get people to understand the identity or be supported in their identity of being a person in recovery earlier, right? Because that's mm -hmm. also too, like, um, that stigma reduction of mm -hmm. what that means, especially at that age when the, the, the thinking around that, the sure. norm in their mind is to, like, party, you know, right. that's what we do. When in actuality, a lot of people really aren't in general, right? We're only right. talking about... 10% of the population, but that's a strong 10% that we could really kind of save. And so my work is really, I'm, I'm really into the fitness portion of it. That's a huge oh, that's part awesome. of my recovery, um, yoga, CrossFit, all of that is a huge part of it. But it really is a, for me, I want to add the component of positive youth development, really talking mm -hmm. about resiliency, self-efficacy, just a space where they can be challenged emotionally, but also be seen as leaders as, as developing peer support and so it's really fun to come into a space and, and not have the structuring already there and really kind of do a community assessment and, and get to know what's going on in the community where we can fit in and what can we do to support the work that's already being done to do this and what other spaces we can go in so juvenile justice I'm super passionate about that. And so doing some programming specifically for those folks mm -hmm. that's already being done and wanting to do more of that is crucial. Um, child protective services, getting involved in those arenas um, and just, you know, the local rec centers, how can we, how can we participate in that? So I'm excited about the possibility. It's a lot of work, but I love working. So, yeah, no, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, Yoga has been a part of my therapy for 10 years now. Um, mm. And I know for me personally, the first yoga class I took, February 2007, I hated. Um, a spiritual awakening and experience was happening a month later that I was unaware of was coming. And then six months after my first yoga class, I took my second one and I fell in love. It was. Mm you know, the air that my lungs requested, it was the heartbeat of my soul. You know, it just, I didn't know that that was where I could exhale. And 
a year later, I was a certified yoga teacher, you know, and 10 plus years later, I'm, I have several other certifications under my belt because the quest for knowledge or the, you know, it's never been quenched. I'm always mm-hmm. interested in learning more and more uh, in terms of how the body was created and the anatomy and physiology and just, you know, movement is really important. And that's not to denigrate anyone that is on medication for mental illness. That's not what we're talking about here, friends. We support, you know, other alternatives or other treatments, um, multiple pathways to recovery. So that's not what that is about. It's just simply highlighting what Air's story is, Tell you know, her personal story. And mm-hmm. I too agree that movement is, is really important. Um, and it can add value, you know, sometimes people discount movement, whatever it is, without having tried it. And so it can, it can add to what you're already doing. So exactly, especially when you have a brain disease, which is what addiction is, it's getting out of the mind, totally getting into your body is so, so important. Um, having that awareness of your space and what you're breathing, getting out of the mind is crucial for me and a lot of people. Exactly. So what do you do to self-care? It sounds like movement is part of that. Anything, so what specifically do you like to do? And then what other things that are not maybe movement related? Yes. So definitely, like I said, yoga, I've just really gotten a kick on yoga again because Mm -hmm. of the altitude. It's like, yeah, it's different to practice there in Denver. So I haven't been able to really get into like the aggressive, like, ah, lift, lift, lift. Um, So that's been really helpful. I have to, I need to figure out ways to build natural endorphins. And this morning, I really enjoyed listening to some um, music and dancing around my apartment, which is super fun for me. That's a huge self-care. Meditation. Mm -hmm slowing down. I struggle with the practice of it, but I still try my best to do it. Um, And friends and family, I have an awesome network of people all over the nation that I love just catching up and talking to. Um, Going out, I still love going out and enjoying times with friends, whether that's dancing and um mentorship is crucial for me so sure. i have a couple of people that i work with regularly just to check in and to make sure that you know i am where i think i am i mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> I can do a really good job of just getting sucked into something and be like oh like is this where i'm supposed to be sure. so i think accountability for my recovery is crucial and so I think the greatest gift that 12 step recovery has given me is a relationship with something bigger than myself. As I said, whether that's through my relationships with people that are true and intimate, but in the past year, I've really cultivated an understanding and a need for just that personal time with who I am and really, really getting into um, my practice of knowing what I'm here for and who I am and that, that really soul development of 
of allowing myself to be and feel gifted and knowing mm-hmm. what gifts that I, I, I bring to the table, I bring to this experience. Because a long time ago, like, I didn't think I had anything to offer other sure. than problems, right? And so now knowing that that's not true, that they, I have a choice, I have multiple choices today. It's really important for me to kind of own that. I feel like that's an, a new level of humility that I'm kind of um, grasping on. So um, that's definitely where I'm at with all that too. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's about being one of many, right. And not thinking we're way up here, but not thinking we're, mm-hmm. I read that once it's like false humility where you're like at the very bottom of the barrel. And one of my friends said uh, once I'm either the S H I T or I'm S H I T, right? Like I'm yeah. either yes. <laughs> one or the other. And it's yeah. like, um, sometimes it takes, but I do think, right, to your point, um, you were talking about mentorship and, you know, kind of life coaching and just spiritual guidance. I do believe as part of humanity, we at times don't see ourselves for who we are, who and what we are, both the, the good and the bad, right? So sometimes I'm unable to see how I've contributed to a problem until someone takes a look at it with me because I'm in it. But equally, I'm unable to see sometimes how much I've grown in an area of my life mm-hmm. until someone says something to me and says, well, Jadima, last time, remember last time how you handled this sort of situation? Well, you're doing it differently this time. And that's awesome. You know, what a gift or that's growth. And I'm like, oh, you know what? They have a point. I, <laughs> I didn't even see that. I didn't even look at it that way because I'm thinking maybe not so positively about myself. So mm-hmm. awesome. Okay, any last words and how can, is Phoenix a, um, it's a, a nonprofit? Yes, it's a nonprofit. Okay, so does that mean that y'all could benefit from money if people Absolutely. have it to give? Okay, so can you tell <laughs> listeners how they can contribute financially if they feel so inclined? Yes, you can go to our website at www.thephoenix.org. Um, you can also, I'm sure this will be on social media at some point, but you yep. can connect me di- with me directly. And then I can also connect you with those folks as well. Um, but any contribution would be grateful to really establishing an amazing community. Um, and we're, we're trying to go across the entire nation, right? Not just in these spaces, but in all spaces and create a program that can adapt to um, different spaces, which is amazing. That's awesome. I love what you're doing, Air, and I love you, and so I grateful love you. that our paths crossed, that the divine saw fit, and that your name kept popping up in different places, and I was like, okay, fine. It's like <laughs> when the divine, it's like, okay, fine, uncle, yeah. you know, like, I, I give up, you know, when... <laughs> Things just keep, you know, people's names um, keep coming up in your consciousness and you're like, okay. Um, You know who actually suggested that I reach out to you is Hmm. Melvin. And I interviewed him. Yep. Good old Melvin. Farmer Melvin. So uh, he was actually on the podcast um, several episodes ago, but uh, he's a good one. So it's always nice to be connected to good people from good people. So absolutely. Awesome. Um, oh yeah, he was episode 52. 
So we are near the end of our time together. I'm sure you'll come back on. This is how I get guests to return. I just ask them when we're hitting record so that they feel compelled to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll be back. Awesome. Yeah, because we want to know, since this is a newer role for you, we want to know how it's going and what we can do to be helpful um, in the future. So money is important now, and it probably will always be important, but any other things that you all are noticing as the program changes and you have more Mm -hmm. insight and more experience with the young people. So what you do is really, really, really important. And thank you so much for sharing your story of sobriety. You're the first one on this arc. Um, Yeah, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's my pleasure. All right. So I just selected a story um, on, oh, it's a kind of longer one, but I think that's okay. We have, we have time. So this is on Humans of New York, and I, I got it from the series called Invisible Wounds because to your point, air, uh, alcoholism addiction, substance use disorder, they're used interchangeably on this podcast, is considered invisible oftentimes. People don't, they don't appreciate it the way they would if someone had a cancer diagnosis, for example. And so there's a lot of shame and a lot of blame, which is why we talk about substance use disorder on this podcast. So This appears to be a gentleman, and it says, I remember walking into my therapist's office and saying this stuff actually works. So he's in New York City. This was, the story was, um, had it produced August 2016. Mm -hmm. I was in charge of 250 Marines during my second deployment. We were assigned to a district called Zingan. Most of Afghanistan's poppy was grown there, and the heroin it produced funded the Taliban's war effort. We didn't have a clear mission. Our job was to establish a presence, in quotes. We were supposed to make the Taliban as uncomfortable as possible. Our mission wasn't to take any hills or to kill a certain number of enemy combatants, and that lack of clarity could be frustrating. Guys were getting killed, but we had no concrete ways to measure our gains. The best I could do was tell them that our mission was to make Fingen a better place. Every day I'd send them on patrols. I'd sit on a in a small mud room, square like this, with maps on the walls and a radio on the table, and the patrols would come call back if they needed support. Some days it was chaos in that room. Multiple patrols would come under fire at the same time, and they'd be all they'd all be calling at once. We lost nine guys over those six months. Dozens were more lost arms or legs. Others had serious gunshot wounds. I remember sitting in an ammo canister the day before we left, with my head between my knees, wondering if we'd done anything at all. And a village elder came up to the gates of our base. He wanted to thank us for making the area safe enough so that his village could finally return to their homes. That was the only tangible difference that I'd seen in six months. It was the ray of light I needed. If you don't do your job, people will die. That message was hammered into our heads during officer training. Even if you tied your boots incorrectly, an officer might get in your face and scream. You don't care about details. Details get people killed in combat. You're going to get people killed. Over and over, it was drilled into me that people would die if I messed up, and nine of my guys died. So it's been extremely hard to forgive myself. Maybe I didn't work hard enough. Maybe I didn't set high enough standards. Maybe I didn't put enough stress on the importance of details. The first guy in my company who died stepped on a bomb that was hidden under a footbridge. 
That was a rule. That was a detail. We were never supposed to walk over footbridges. He knew that. Maybe I didn't tell him enough times. I can see his face right now. If he was sitting here, I'd say, Mike, you weren't supposed to do that. You know you weren't supposed to do that. Sometimes my anxiety would get so bad that I'd turn completely white. I'd shoot out of bed some nights and my heart would be racing and I'd start running around the room trying to find stuff. My wife would have to physically put me back to bed. Then one day I was taking a train out of Hoboken and we were passing through these wetlands and there were all these reeds and it reminded me of Afghanistan. I looked down at my phone and there was a Facebook post commemorating the anniversary of the death of a guy in my company and I got dizzy and couldn't talk. I thought I was having a heart attack. I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to get help. I went to the emergency room at the VA and was diagnosed with PTSD. Eventually, I found my way to Headstrong Project. At first, I dreaded going to therapy. I went through a treatment called EMDR. My therapist would take me back to every point of trauma and have me describe it in detail. It was like literally going back to time, back in time. I could touch the faces of all the guys I'd lost. I could talk to them. We could talk about what happened and how we all knew the risks and how sometimes people died and it was nobody's fault. And I could apologize to them. And when it was over, I'd be completely exhausted and I'd feel like a B-I-T-C-H because I just cried for an hour, but it worked. The symptoms started to go away. After a few sessions, I remember walking into my therapist's office and saying, this stuff really works. And he said, yeah, it does. He didn't even tell me he was enlisting. This is his mom talking. He called his dad one day and said, don't tell mom. I remember it was Halloween. We were trick-or-treating with our grandson, and I noticed that my husband was walking ahead of me, whispering with my son-in-law. When he finally told me, I supported his decision 100%. I think it was a defense mechanism. I focused on supporting him so I wouldn't feel afraid. I just didn't want the military to change him. I raised four children. I knew how much of them were, how each of them were, was different. Chris was, Chris was the one who felt things the deepest. He wanted to help people, and I didn't want him to see anything. See, I didn't want him to see something that had changed him forever. That was my prayer every night. Other moms in our town had sons who went to war. I'd heard stories. They told me that their sons had seen too much. They just weren't the same when they came home. When Chris first got back from Afghanistan, I didn't notice much difference. He seemed to be spending less time with us, but he was recently married, so that seemed natural to me. But one night he came over and asked us all to sit down at the kitchen table. He said, Mom and Dad, I want to tell you something. I thought he had cancer, but he said, I've been diagnosed with PTSD. When I heard those words, my heart sank. I thought it meant forever. I thought it meant a lifetime, but he explained to us that he was getting treatment and that it was going away. My husband is a retired police officer. After Chris left, he said to me, I'm so proud of him for, taking, for talking about this stuff because I never did. So... Powerful stories. Treatment can definitely help. Recovery is possible, both Absolutely. with substance use disorder and so many other ailments. So, all right, let's, we'll close in the usual manner. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there's only one of us. Mm. So thanks again. And friends that are listening, thank you so much for the support, the love. Rate this podcast, review it, share it with other people, subscribe. 
My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie. This is the Type A Hippie podcast, GCAS episode 76. Have a gratitude-filled day. Until next time, namaste.